0: Well, I'm not going to preach long because I think this one's pretty self-explanatory. You guys heard the story. You get it. Um, thank you, Susie, for reading all that. If you remember, we skipped the, per- the first part of Hebrews 5 a few weeks ago. And that's because we're picking up Melchizedek here. Uh, there's a thread of Melchizedek, and, and it kind of culminates here. Uh, Hebrews 5 points out that Christ is a priest. And because he's God's son... He mediates for people to God like a priest, but not a temporary priesthood. It's a mysterious, eternal priesthood like this curious Melchizedek figure from Genesis 14. And we get no more explanation than that from Hebrews 5. And then Melchizedek is brought up again in Hebrews 6, where it says uh, that Christ is the forerunner, kind of like the uh, trailblazing pioneer that I mentioned when we looked through Hebrews 2. Uh, He suffers the struggling of rejoining humanity to God, and we walk in behind his trailblazing. But again, last week, we didn't get any explanation of Melchizedek. We just got a a reference to him. And so this week, we're going to look at who Melchizedek is. There's a few things about Hebrews 7 that can make modern audiences check out. Uh, The first thing that makes modern audiences check out is we don't have a strong concept of a priesthood in our culture. Also, this form of writing is pretty uncommon in our day. It's called typology. And then the third thing is that we never talk about Melchizedek. Uh, So we're going to look at four things total. We're going to look at what is priesthood? Who is Melchizedek and what is his story? Why is Melchizedek a typology for the Hebrews preacher? And then fourth, we're going to look at how Christ lives out this priest office. Okay, so first, what's a priest? Today we think of priests almost exclusively as a job title for a Roman Catholic parish leader, right? In a practical sense, priests are mediators. They take someone's struggle and liability and uh, they take it on themselves to free that person from it. I think a priest is kind of like an accountant who takes on the challenge of doing your taxes, they take that stress and confusion off of you and onto themselves. Or perhaps it's like a counselor. I mentioned that recently when we were talking about priests. Someone who absorbs your anxieties and hurts through listening. And in that displacement, those dark burdens are, are taken away. And then you're kind of repointed towards God. Or a, a pastor. Someone who listens to your burdens and and knows you well enough that these burdens also burden them. And through that process, they point you to God. So that's what a priest is. It's a mediator who takes on your burdens and takes them to God. In the Old Testament, priests were the ones who were bringing sacrifices to God, and, and they were praying for the people to be reconciled to God. And priests, uh, their, their duty was essentially to connect people to God by speaking words of God to them, making his presence and his character clear. There's a lot of overlap in the role of a priest and the role of a pastor, uh, but only to a point, which we're going to see later. Uh, So to give you this mindset of a priest being similar to a pastor, let me read you a description of a pastor from one of my heroes, Eugene Peterson. He says, I can be hired to do a job, paid a fair wage if I do it, dismissed if I don't, but I can't be hired to be a pastor. For my primary responsibility is not to the people I serve, but to the God I serve. As it turns out, The people I serve would often prefer an idol who would do what they want done rather than do what God revealed in Jesus wants them to do. So the job of this pastor priest is a is a calling more than it is a a job. It's it's not a duty. It's a it's an office. Uh, The question for Ben and I as pastors, Ben Milner, our senior pastor, is not whether we still like it. Or whether we can make more money elsewhere. It's just whether we're called or not. That's how we're asked to approach it. You know, people struggle. They worship idols. And pastors are put there to help correct that misorientation. And do the work of, of reconciling those people to God. And that's, that's what it is to be a priest. To reconcile people to God so they can turn their face back towards his. Another person I really like uh, who writes on pastoring is a guy named Craig Barnes. And he likes to refer to pastors as poets, and he puts it this way. One of the reasons that people need pastors is precisely because God is always present, but usually not apparent. It takes a poet, which is the, the frame he's using for pastors, to find that presence beneath the layers of strategy people have for coping with feeling of his absence. Thus the parish minister's soul becomes a crucible in which sacred visions are ground together with the common and at times profane experiences of human life. In other words, people want to medicate themselves and, and hope that this will cure their ills, but but when we choose the medicine, we choose what we like, not what we need. And we need someone to help us choose the medicine that's going to reconcile us to God. We spend a lot of time on that, the medications that we choose uh, through the sermons in Hebrews 1 through 6, the various uh, warning passages and, uh, and talking about the specific things in our culture that draw us away from God. So I'm not going to get into that. Um, but the pastor priest, their duty in that is that they're taking our sins and our struggles, all those things that we were talking about in Hebrews 1 through 6, And they're listening, they're absorbing grief and anger, and they're redirecting a person's soul to God. And it's good work, it's good work, but it is not complete. It doesn't complete the task of reconnecting creature and creator. We can take on people's burdens, we can point them to God, but we cannot actually repair the rift between humanity and the God they feel is far off, and neither can a priest. So now let's talk about Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? Melchizedek's the first priest that we encounter in the Bible, and uh, his descriptors only make him more mystifying. He's fatherless. He's motherless. He has no genealogy. He's not related to Abraham. Abraham. He's not a Levite because those priests came later in the tribes of Israel. He is the mysterious priest king of Salem. Melchizedek is like Tom Bombadil. Do you know who Tom Bombadil is? He's from Lord of the Rings. Does that make you guys miss Milner? (laughs) Tolkien was a writer who gave painstaking Attention to backstory. And yet we never get Tom Bombadil's backstory. He's just this guy that wanders in and out of the narrative. He comes, he struts through the old forest singing in verse, unconcerned, unthreatened by any danger. He's not aggressive, but he's not weak either. Through song, Tom mediates for Mary and Pippin to rescue them from the, this tree that captured them. So he possesses power. But it's not a complete power. And I think that's just a, that's a really excellent image for who Melchizedek is. We don't know the details of the exchange between Melchizedek and Abraham. It's pretty short in Genesis 14. All we know is that Abraham and his servants rescue Lot from captivity of some kings from another region. Abraham wins the battles, crosses paths with Melchizedek. And Melchizedek comes out. Maybe singing like Tom Bombadil. He brings out bread and wine and he declares, Abraham is blessed by God, evidenced in this victory. And that's pretty much the whole story. Abraham rescues Lot with this undermanned army. Melchizedek enters the picture and credits God for Abraham's victory. And Abraham senses some spiritual obligation to Melchizedek. This is before Abraham's family becomes a nation of 12 tribes, well, well before that, with one of those tribes serving as priests. There's no, there's no Levites here. Abraham tithes to this priest, Melchizedek, so why does he tithe to him? The tithing is Abraham agreeing with Melchizedek's credit to God. This comes after the victory. Okay, so Abraham's not going to Melchizedek before his battle in order to pay him to receive some mystical mojo, like a like a witch doctor or something. And he's not paying a tenth of his spoils as a fee because he won because he doesn't seem to have uh, had any interaction with this Melchizedek before that. Instead, we read the chapters around Genesis 14, and they all point to God being the powerful governor of the universe who makes a covenant with Abram and so since God is not some uh, mystical genie to be manipulated by this tribal leader Abraham with the help of a priest king named Melchizedek we need to remember that the main character in Genesis 14 is not Abraham it's not Melchizedek it's Yahweh it's God This, this tithe is a confession Melchizedek is bringing out bread and wine, celebrating Yahweh's faithfulness. And then Abraham's tithing, saying, these aren't my spoils. They're yours. I had no business gaining this blessing with my undermanned army, so I have no problem parting with it. A tithe is a, is a specific word of worship. It's not, it's not just a fee. It's, a, it's an act of worship. It's a confession that what one has belongs to God, so we're free to part with some of it and free to keep some of it as a provision to us. That's, that's everything we have. So God's taking care of Abraham, and lest Abraham give himself credit for his implausible victory, the priest king Melchizedek brings out bread and wine, and he says, look at God. His power was on your side, wasn't it? Melchizedek's giving God the credit. And Abraham is agreeing by tithing some of his spoils. Abraham, in his gratitude to God, responds with the gift. He gives it to Melchizedek, but the tithe is a confession to God. It says, this is not mine. I came into it. It was given to me. The, the Hebrews preacher, though, is not just referring to this Genesis 14 passage. Uh, the Hebrews preacher is actually leaning on Psalm 110, which interprets Melchizedek. Genesis 14 tells the story of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 offers an interpretation of Melchizedek. And in Psalm 110, the psalmist refers to this order of priests in the heritage of Melchizedek. This priesthood its not like the, the Levites that we're going to talk more about next week. This priesthood is something eternal. It's something forever. It's complete. Psalm 110 is saying there's a priesthood that came before the Levites. And in fact, that priesthood, it goes on past the Levites. The Messiah, who's eternal, is more complete than any finite priesthood. And why does this matter to Hebrews? Well, that's where we get to this typology thing. Melchizedek is pointing to a more complete priesthood in Jesus. A typology is when a a person or an event is signaling something with broader importance. For instance, the story of Abraham and Isaac. That stands alone. It's its own historical event. Abraham uh, has to make this painful decision to sacrifice his son. And in that we see the pain of Abraham alone. That's, that stands on its own. But, but now we, reading that story back, can see that it's a, a signal towards Christ. The father willing to watch his son suffer for a greater worthy sacrifice. And Melchizedek is like that. Melchizedek is an example of a king priest who has no origin story. No finale. He just exists. He's a character unto himself. But he also helps us see how Christ is a priest king who has no origin story. No finale. He just exists to point to God. Okay. Let's, let's pause. We've, we've talked about Melchizedek and typology. This is a lot of big words, confusing things. Uh, I want to just acknowledge that Hebrews is, is very abstract at times, at least to our culture, and, and uh, cultic. And when I say cultic, I mean religious in the sense of um, there's these sacred acts like sacrifices. There's these sacred people like priests. And these are things that are really far removed from our culture. And there are things that we might even be suspicious of. Like, what is this? Is this even a real thing? Does this matter? Hebrews talks a lot about priests and sacrifices. If you remember, he was talking a lot about angels a couple chapters back. And I imagine that's, that's really difficult for some of you to appreciate. And if, if that's hard, then Melchizedek is not going to be very helpful as an analogy or a typology for you to better understand who Jesus is. You know, for some of us, it's hard enough to believe in Jesus. So a mysterious priest-king who's a typology in a book that talks a lot about angels, uh, is is not going to necessarily be very helpful for an urban, educated, 21st century community in America. But that doesn't mean that this is useless for us. In fact, maybe it pushes us to have a fuller view of Christ from an angle that we rarely access. You know, how often are we thinking of Christ as our priest? Blaise Pascal said, Man is neither angel nor beast. And unhappily, whoever wants to act the angel, acts the beast. And what what he meant by that is when we're too disembodied, too theoretical, we ironically end up being more like animals. When we're so focused on the cerebral and our skepticism, the irony is that we become overly concerned with just this physical world around us. And I think that that's been proven true in our society. Over centuries, we've convinced ourselves that we are completely rational and autonomous, and if things don't fit our categories, then it's not our categories that flex, but rather the object of our suspicion that needs to flex. You know, we don't have a category for angels, so it must be that angels don't exist. We don't really have priests. So why would I listen to a story about a priest? So here's an example and an analogy of why I think you should listen to the story of Melchizedek, and why I think we should question our own ability to interpret things i heard a story last week about the chernobyl disaster when a reactor at the soviet nuclear power plant exploded and the story is of a guy who went out on his roof that day to sunbathe and he had not heard the news and it was already unrelated to that an unseasonably warm day and he enjoyed the sun and he got a quick tan And he went to tell his neighbor about these good conditions, unaware that he was acting crazy and that he was turning brown really fast. He was exposed to these conditions in his environment, but he couldn't see it. He was unaware of how the environment was acting upon him. So I ask you this question. Are we exposed to an overinflated sense of our reason and our intellectual acumen? Uh, think we might be. And I think if we question that, we can be more open to something like Melchizedek. Uh, just as a side note, if you want to think more about this, you should watch Malcolm Gladwell's TED Talk on the strange tale of the Norden bomb site. It's just this great tale that will help us see that like we, in our moment, we think we've figured out the way the world works, especially through science and technology, but just the way that 50 years later, we can look back and say, well, that, that didn't explain that at all. You know, is it Melchizedek and Hebrews that are weird or is it me? You know, is it those categories or are my categories that are weird? Maybe I can try to embrace angels and priests and sacrifices as an idea so that I can better understand Christ. Okay. So that's that's typology. We've talked about Melchizedek. We have these priests that are getting talked about. What are the two priesthoods I've mentioned the Levites? Well, Melchizedek, first, he's this priest-king that's full of mystery and seemingly timeless, and, and, uh, and he's historic, and, he's, uh, and so are the Levites, but they're different. We know their genealogy, we know their history, and they're, they're well-described. The Levites were descendants of Moses' brother Aaron. Their job in Israel was to take sacrifices and prayers and go to God on behalf of individuals and the tribes in Israel. And these weren't empty sacrifices. They were tokens of reconciliation. These people knew that they ignored God. And they wanted to reconcile. God fed them. He gave them his presence. And later he gave them a homeland. But they often failed. And so they wanted to signal to him that they wanted to reunite. So he gave them these priests as a way to do that. These priests are like a foolish husband with flowers, that's what that's what Israel is doing. With the, the priests, the priests are standing on behalf they're standing on behalf of all the husbands of Israel, saying to God, "We've failed. Take, please take these flowers as a symbol of reunification." Again, that's a that's a culturally difficult analogy. You might think, I don't see how sacrifice uh, is something that with flowers, you know. If I brought a dead goat to my wife Erin, of course it would be the choicest of goats, but nonetheless a dead goat. Uh, I'm not sure my fortunes of reconciliation would be improved, right? But think of it this way: if we lived in an agrarian culture and I raised that goat, she would see that this is this is a this is a token of reconciliation, like flowers but a dead goat. The rest of Israel, their jobs, not the Levites, the other 11 tribes, they they farmed or they worked in trades. Uh, They owned land. They had jobs. And and that included the tribe of Judah, which Hebrews points out is the tribe that Jesus was born from. The Levites, on the other hand, they didn't own land and they didn't work uh, jobs. They they were cared for by the 11 tribes. And in return, their vocation was was to help the people uh, come back to God and to worship him so they could grow in intimacy with their creator. The people asked these Levites to be available to care for them and to offer sacrifices so God would see they wanted to come back. And, uh, and, for, the elite, and for the Levites, their, their duty was to accumulate wisdom and knowledge about worship so that they could teach Israel about that. And that, that's where we come back to this similarity to a pastor. Ben and I were set apart from the community to help people think through reconciling with God and to encourage people to worship God. We don't farm. We don't work in trades. You all do. You teach in the classroom. You treat people through medicine. You build and repair homes. You advocate for people in court. You help people buy houses, and you help people do their taxes. The Levites are the are the pastors of Israel and Ben and I are the priests of Salem Press. But in verse 18 it literally says the former we're talking about the levite priesthood and the law of Moses that they kept is impotent and unprofitable. That's what it literally says. I want to be careful to make sure that you don't get the sense that God changes his plans. God has always had one single plan for redemption from the beginning of time. He always knew that we would corrupt his perfect Eden. He always knew that he would send his son because he weighed the cost. And that cost was worth it to create humanity. And then the law comes along and teaches us to love what God loves. And the priesthood is a worthy vocation in Israel because it aids people in recognizing their wanderings from the law. But uh, the law only points to the sacred. The pastor-priest only serves as a poet to interpret between the ordinary and the sacred. And pastors today can only point people to the sacred. The law couldn't, could only point people to God, but it couldn't repair the breach. The prophets could not reconcile Israel. They could only speak truth about its idolatry. Angels could not save Israel. They could only bring the message of God's truth. Moses could not justify Israel. He could only give them the law to cast a vision for what Eden was like. And the Levites could not atone for Israel. They could only take the burdens to God for their friends, those priestly gestures on their behalf. They show that the people want restoration, but they cannot accomplish that. When it says that uh, Judah... When Judah's mentioned in verse 14, Hebrews is saying Jesus' family came from David and David's family came from the tribe of Judah. So Jesus doesn't come from the Levites. And this doesn't make Judah a more special tribe than the Levites. It just means that we're not thinking of Jesus as the next phase of the Levites. He's something totally different. He's not a Levite. He's like Melchizedek. He has no origin story No Finale, he's awe-inspiring, he's unexplained, and he points the people to the kingdom of God. Going way back to the beginning of the book, we know that the Father and the Son are the same essence, both present and united at creation, at Genesis. That's what Hebrews 1 says. The Son is Christ who gave up the reign over the cosmos to live as a human. That's what Hebrews 2 says. Jesus is a better messenger than the angels. He's a more lucid explainer than the prophets. He brings more than the law in his message. He's a better leader than Moses. He's more permanent resting place than the promised land. He's the anchor that keeps us from drifting away. That's what Hebrews 1 through 6 has been telling us. Now we get to this. He's a priest who comes to the people also as a king. Unexplained. He's not like the Levites. And what we're getting from that, as we build up through Hebrews 1, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 3, Hebrews 4, Hebrews 5, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 7, is that we need a priest king who is eternal. Moses can't do it. The angels can't do it. The law can't do it. We certainly can't do it. That was made abundantly clear through the warning passages. We need one who can be the priest that humans need and the king with the power of to make his kingdom manifest. Only a human can speak for our struggling tribe of wayward humans. And only God can repair the cosmic rift that we've created. So only the God-man can restore the broken link between the spiritual kingdom of heaven and the exiled land of earth. Only the very creator can restore the design to perfection the Son of God, who is not like God, but is the actual contours of God, like a wax seal with the symbol. That's what it says in Hebrews. They're one. God and Christ are one. They're distinct yet one. The Son of God needed to do what the prophets, angels, tribal heads, and Levites could never do. Every week when we say the confession of sin, I want to come back to God. And during that one minute of silence that seems like forever, I am so aware of something that I wasn't aware of all week, which is just uh, that I haven't paid attention to God's presence at all. And then in that moment, I think, oh, I want to come back. I know I've done harm to my fellow humans, my friends, my family. And I know I've squandered chances daily to spend time with God, who made me and loves me. I want to come back to him, but how? What can I bring? Flowers? A goat? My simple prayers? Maybe another pastor can help me stand before God? No. It's not enough to bridge the gulf between my creator and me. What would it take? The sacrifice of another human, like the story of Abraham and Isaac, my own death, would that do it? It'd be pretty extreme, but would that cross the bridge to God? None of that gets us back to Eden. And none of that gets us back to a life hidden in God. And so God does the work for me. In Christ. Christ is my priest in the eternal order of Melchizedek. He lives the life of a human. Not only is he the priest, not only is he the priest who brings the sacrifice, not only is he the king who accepts it, he's the sacrifice itself. He's the human priest who lives perfectly. He's the spotless lamb whose innocent life is crushed. And he's my king. He's the ruler of all who accepts his own death on my behalf that I might come back.